are in the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 4 today. And uh, Mark chapter 4 contained four parables. There was the parable of the sower, uh, the parable of the lamp or the candle that's not uh, put under a bushel but on a lampstand. And then the last two parables we're going to see this morning. Uh, The first one I read last week, if you were here, uh, but now it's... uh, uh, we get to read it again and actually look at it uh, uh, quite a bit today. Mark chapter 4 and verse 26. And he said, The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground and should sleep by night and rise by day. And the seed should sprout and grow. He himself does not know how. For the earth yields crops by itself, first the blade, then the head. After that, the full grain in the head. But when the grain ripens, immediately he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. Now, this passage is a part of a lengthy uh, discussion that Jesus gave. And in fact, he would say to uh, these people, Mark would give us that commentary, that Jesus didn't speak to these people without a parable. And the reason that he was doing that was an act of judgment. He had been preaching clearly unto them, but... They had rejected his message and they had hardened their hearts to it to the point that now he was speaking in these parables, enigmatic as they were, mysterious. They didn't understand what he was saying. He didn't explain it to them, although when needed, he did explain it later to the disciples. The two passages we're going to consider today were not given any explanation in the text. And so we just figured that the disciples knew what he was talking about, especially since he'd given them such a clear interpretation of the parable of the sower who went forth to sow seed, and the seed, he said, is the Word of God. All of these parables then would deal with how the Word of God is working in our world to advance the kingdom agenda of Jesus Christ. Now these last two parables, uh, one I've read for you, I want to read this other one, verse 30. Then he said, to what shall we liken the kingdom of God? Or with what parable shall we picture it? It is like a mustard seed, which when it is sown on the ground is smaller than all the seeds on earth. But when it is sown, it grows up and becomes greater than all herbs and shoots out large branches so that the birds of the air may nest under its shade. Of these four parables, then, you see very quickly that three of them dealt specifically with the, with the seed. Three of them. And uh, so, obviously, Jesus wanted us to know this and understand that there was something about seed and the work of seed and the planting of a seed and the growing of a crop that was picturing the work of the kingdom and the work of the Word and advancing the kingdom. Now, these last two are simple stories, but with profound truth that is contained in it for us today. And the first one we call the parable of the soundly sleeping farmer. The kingdom of God is if a man should scatter seed on the ground. What next? He goes to bed, goes to sleep. He should sleep by night and rise by day, and the seed should sprout and grow. He himself does not know how. Now, the story is easy to follow. We once again have a man scattering seed on the ground. Nothing complicated about that. Uh, Very much uh, like the parable of the sower, the seed would be the Word of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is something for the farmer to do. The seed must be scattered. The seed must be planted. 
Uh, now that is not necessarily true of a lot of different kinds of, of weeds, for example. All of them seem to grow perfectly well by themselves. Uh, nobody is going to plant theobine weed, whatever that is. Nobody's going to plant cuckleburrs out there in the field. That doesn't happen, but they, they make it all on their own. But you can't just plow a field and then hope that it's going to grow up in cotton or that it's going to grow up in rice or that it'll grow up in corn or grow up in soybeans. That's not going to happen. If there is going to be a crop, if there's going to be a harvest, somebody has to plant the seed. That is an inviolable law. If there will be a harvest, someone must do the work of planting. Now Jesus would later tell these same disciples that he was sending them to reap a harvest that they didn't plant. And if someone is going to reap a harvest that they didn't plant, all that means is that somebody sowed a a field that they didn't harvest. That's the only way that can work. If you're going to reap a harvest that you didn't plant, somebody planted it, but they didn't get to reap it. Now this would speak specifically and spiritually of the fact that Jesus was already at work, and He was. Uh, He was sowing the seed and doing so faithfully. John the Baptist had come, and, and he had begun to sow the seed. Moses and the prophets of the Old Testament had proclaimed the truth of God and many, many people had believed. Now, granted, the Jewish people had turned this into a perverted system where uh, they would have salvation by works, uh, but that was not always the case. Abraham believed God, Romans chapter 4 says, and it was accounted unto him for righteousness. So did Isaac, so did Jacob, so did Joseph. Multitudes of people then read the law, understood that it declared their sinfulness, And then they believed by faith in the one who was to come, the Messiah, foretold by all of the prophets, as Jesus famously said, uh, as to all of the prophets, all of them, spoke of the incredible work of the Messiah. So Jesus was sending these people out, and, and these apostles, they were going to find those folks. They didn't know where they were. They didn't know who they were. But God did. God did. They were saved people. Waiting for the Messiah, who had no idea that he had arrived. Remember, there was no television back then. Uh, They were in even worse shape than we are. You can't believe what we see on the news, but they didn't have any at all. Uh, No internet, no nothing. Uh, How did news get around? It moved at a walking pace. All the way up in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 18, we'll be introduced to an amazing young preacher by the name of Apollos. He was working and mightily convincing the Jews. Uh, He was a believer, but the Bible said he knew only the the gospel of John. He knew only the baptism, rather, of John. He had heard the preaching of John the Baptist. He had believed in the coming Messiah. No doubt he had been baptized and received the baptism of John. Uh, But he was all the way down in Alexandria in Egypt. There was no way for him to know that Jesus had died and was buried and rose again. So when he came up there and began to preach, he was preaching all he knows. That the kingdom is coming. The Messiah is coming. Thank God there was Aquila and Priscilla. What did they do? Well, they reaped a harvest they didn't sow. Because they were able to take him, that young gifted preacher, aside and gently, no doubt, show him the way of the Lord more perfectly. Uh, Apollos was not alone. There were many, many in that situation. You see, Jesus was sending them out to reap a crop that they did not plant. 
There'll be times when we get to do that. Times maybe when we sit down by somebody on an airplane or find ourselves working with somebody, uh, having a conversation at the water fountain. We had nothing to do with this person, had no idea of what was going on in their life, but all of a sudden we get to have a spiritual conversation with them. Maybe somebody gets saved. Maybe we get to invite them to church and they actually come. Maybe we get to see somebody uh, then that the Word of God has a profound effect on their life. We didn't plan it. We couldn't have arranged it if we tried. But God was at work. Maybe other people had sold into their life. Someone else then had ministered to them somewhere along the way. And then we get that experience of reaping a harvest that we didn't plant. Oh, what a blessing that is. I've been that way many, many, many times as a pastor. Many times as an evangelist. You go out and preach a revival and somebody comes and walks down the aisle. And maybe that pastor had been talking to that person, that Sunday school teacher had been talking to them. Who knows how many people in that church had been ministering to them. And then I get there and preach maybe a revival and here they come walking down the aisle. Who gets the credit for that? God does. God does. Paul said it best. And he spoke of this very man, Apollos, I just mentioned to you. He said to the church at Corinth, I have planted and Apollos has watered. But God... God gives the increase. That's always the way it is. We get the chance then sometimes to reap a harvest when we didn't even plant it. And it's just so easy. There it is. We're at the right place at the right time. And all we do is fire up the combine because we can see this person's ready. Their heart's all ready. Sometimes we're on the other side of that fence. And we're the ones who labor and work and work and work and we talk to somebody and we invite them and we try again and again and again and no, no. Well, we never see any results of it at all. But then all of a sudden, we get that phone call. Hey, I've been saved. What do we do? Get mad? Man, I've been talking to you for five years and then you go off and somebody... No, we don't get mad. Same thing. We plant it. We plant it. But God is the one who makes it work. Uh, One of the writers uh, that I read after this week made a very astute observation. He said, once we have planted the seed, it is out of our jurisdiction. (laughs) I like that. It's out of sight. We can't see it. We don't know anything about it. And once we have planted the seed, then it goes to work doing what only the seed can do. But the seed must be planted. Somebody has to plant it. We may reap a harvest that we didn't plant. All that means is that somebody else did that work. But there has to be the planting if there's going to be a harvest. Now after the farmer has done this in Jesus' story, what does he do? Uh, Jesus mentions two things. The farmer sleeps and the farmer rises. What does he do after he has planted the seed? He goes to bed and goes to sleep. What, a, what an interesting concept. I tell you what, we got a nation full of insomniacs these days. I, I, it's, it's amazing, struggling. What did this guy do? He did what he was supposed to do. He planted the seed. Then what did he do? He went to bed and rested and went to sleep. Why? Because it was out of his jurisdiction. There was nothing that he could do to make that seed grow. Only God could do that. 
Now, science has a lot of amazing things that it can do, and no doubt it could take a seed and it can analyze that thing and tell you everything about what is in that seed. It could tell you about the atomic, certainly the molecular composition of that, tell you exactly everything. I mean, we can study everything about it. We can get all the ingredients that are in there. But if we arranged all of those ingredients and packed them up, could we make a seed that we can plant in the ground and grow? We can duplicate its composition except for one thing. The Bible tells us what that one thing is. That's in seeds. It's got a very complicated name. It's called life. Life. The Bible says in Him, that is in Jesus Christ, was life. And the life was the light of men. You see, there's life in the seed. Whether it's a plant seed, an animal seed, or a human seed, there's life in the seed. We can duplicate the composition of that, but we can't put the life in it. Only God can do that. There is something then that only a seed can do. We can plant it in the ground, but at the end of the day, only God can put life in that seed so that it actually germinates and grows. Back when I was in elementary school, I don't remember. I tried real hard to think about what grade it was, but I don't remember. It really doesn't matter. I know we were in elementary school because it was old school, and that school's gone now. And uh, so I know that. Down in Taylor High School, and only then it was Taylor Elementary, of course. One of my elementary school teachers brought a bag full of butter beans to school. We had those old folding paper towels that were just about as wide as your hand, those old brown paper towels. You remember them? They came in a big sack. We got a sack of it. Every one of us got a butter bean and about four paper towels. We put that butter bean inside the paper towel, folded them over, and then we went around. She had her little pail, and and she watered all of those things. Now, we're going to watch this, boys and girls. And, of course, the next day we all went in there, and the first thing we wanted to do was go in there and and peek at it. No, no. She said, no, leave it alone. Don't don't open it up. It might mess it up. There's something glorious going in there. Just wait. And so we waited, waited. Finally, I don't remember how long it was. A few days later, we were able to go, go back. And, of course, you know what happened. Every day we'd put a little water, keep that paper towel moist, keep that seed in the dark. You know what happened. We went back a few days later and that seed had sprouted. We call it germination. It's what Jesus was talking about in this passage. Now, again, we know all kinds of things about germination. We know what it takes. We know how it operates. We probably know a lot more about it than the farmers in Jesus' day knew about it. But after all these many years, the premise doesn't change. You take a seed... You put it in the darkness of the earth, you give it water. And that seed will sprout, it'll put down roots, it will shoot up a plant. After all these many years, quite frankly, folks, I'm still not sure how it knows which one goes in which direction. The roots go down, maybe it's it's down there in the dark. The plant goes up. First the plant, Jesus said, then the head, then the crop. The seed goes to work doing what only the seed can do. Any farmer would tell you there's more to be done, and and certainly that was true in Jesus' day as well. There would be other parables that he would tell, other stories where he would talk about the ongoing work of the farmer 
in John, uh, the Gospel of John, he would say, uh, come work for me today in my vineyard. That was another story. In, in John chapter 9, when he healed the blind man, he said, I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night comes when no man can work. So while there's much that we can do that might have an effect on the harvest, Jesus doesn't talk about any of those things. He's only talking about how the seed does what only the seed can do. For us, the application is pretty obvious. There's a work that only the seed can do, and so our task is to plant the seed. And then what? (laughs) Go to bed and rest. Go to sleep. We might find that a little difficult to apply. When we consider the incredible obligation of the Great Commission, when we consider the fact that here's somebody over here that, you know, I love them, I care about them, they're my neighbor, they're my friend, they're my spouse, my husband, my wife, they're my mom or dad, they're my siblings, they're my kids. I want them to be saved. If they're not saved, if they die unsaved, then they face an eternity in hell. How can we sleep at night? Jesus did. How can we rest? Jesus did. You see, he gives us an important principle in this passage. We sow the seed. That has to be done. It is an essential part of the work. If there's going to be a harvest, somebody has to plant the seed. We sow the seed. But then the seed goes to work. And it does what it is going to do. I like Isaiah chapter 55 and verse 11 where Jesus said, or the, uh, the prophet said, So shall my word, God said to the prophet Isaiah, So shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please, and it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. You see, there is a work for us to do. There is uh, that task of planting the gospel seed. We put it in a way, we put it out there in the field. We can't see what it does. We really can't explain what it does. We can't do its work for it. Nothing can. But then there comes another time when we do our work, and that's the work of the harvest. Uh, No field ever matures that the farmer who owns that field doesn't notice it. Never happens. He planted a field full of wheat, I guarantee you he's going to know when it's time to harvest it. He plants a field of corn, I guarantee you he's going to know when it's time to harvest. He sees that. If there's one thing that I've been burdened about, and many things certainly that this passage speaks to us, but I felt the acute burden in this passage. I I think, you know, it's easy for us, as, as strange as it is, it's easier for us to plant the seed somehow than it is for us to fire up the combine and go out and harvest it. We're watching the seed. We're we're concerned about that opportunity, and rightly so. But the other side is just as real. That time where we reach out to people and and, and we share the gospel with that goal then of, of seeing them brought in. There's a time for the harvest and a time for the planting. In the meantime, we trust the seed of the gospel to do what only it can do. Quickly then, I want us to see the mighty mustard seed. 
What shall we like in the kingdom of God? It's like a mustard seed, which when it is sown on the ground is smaller than all the seeds on the earth. But when it is sown, it grows up and becomes greater than all herbs and shoots out large branches so that the birds of the air may nest under its shade. Now this parable is also mentioned in Matthew chapter 13, and I preached on that back in 2018, so I'm sure all of y'all remember that. But uh, all of those who come here regularly... Uh, truth is, I knew I had preached on it, but I had to go back and look up <laughs> and see when it was. It was some time back. Uh, and, and my uh, concept, the message that I would give you, hasn't changed in the intervening time. Uh, the elements of the story, again, are not hard to understand. The mustard seed was the smallest cultivated seed. Now, a lot of people want to trip Jesus up in this passage. See, this seed is smaller, this seed is smaller. Yeah, but this was the smallest of, of the cultivated seeds. This was the smallest seed that they would plant in Bible times. Uh, the variety that they planted in their time would reach a height of about three to five feet. In good years, it would grow as high as nine feet. Uh, field full of mustard, nine foot tall, was an impressive sight to see. The, in, the story simply emphasizes how that the kingdom and the work of the kingdom would start small, but then it would grow exponentially, incredibly. It would grow much larger than any of them could have ever anticipated. This is what the gospel did. It is what the gospel does. At first, the gospel of Jesus Christ was dwarfed by Judaism with all of its ceremony and tradition and all of its deeply entrenched power in the hearts and the minds of people. And the hardness of the hearts of of people would cause it mostly to be rejected. Uh, But even then, it started small, but it grew and it grew rapidly. After Jesus had completed His ministry on the day of Pentecost, there were how many? 120 120. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 mentioned 500 believers. 500. I want you to think about that for a moment in the fact that uh, our church right here, Faith Baptist Church, has more active members than were present at a service after Jesus' three and a half years. The kingdom work started Small. (laughs) Oh, but then came the day of Pentecost and 3,000 people got saved and baptized and added to the church. How would you like to have been at that first business meeting that next week after all them new people? Well, I don't know anybody here, man. What are we... Uh, listen, that wasn't even a problem at all. I don't even think they were having a business meeting. They just, uh, the Bible says, continued on steadfastly in the apostles' word and in doctrine and in fellowship and in breaking of bread and prayers. <laughs> they didn't need a business meeting. They were too busy learning all the things they needed to learn. It was a, a mighty and wonderful time. It wasn't long before there were 5,000 who were saved and baptized. It wasn't long after that till their number was just multiplying. The historian uh, Dr. Luke tells us. Then persecution came. A guy named Saul raised up persecution against the church. If you were to ask those early believers in Jesus Christ who their public enemy number one was, it would have been a quick answer. Saul. Saul of Tarsus. I don't know who the main enemy of Christianity would be today, but I know one thing. When an enemy of the gospel gets saved, wonderful things happen. Amen? 
Are we praying for those people who have set themselves against the truth and set themselves against the gospel? What a great thing it would be if they got saved. That's what happened to Saul. And one other thing happened. The Bible says they were scattered abroad, and the word there is diasporia. Isn't that interesting? It means uh, they were sowed like seed, and they went everywhere preaching the gospel. They got up to Antioch, and men of Cyprus and Cyrene, they said, came then and began to preach to the Grecian people. This is in Acts chapter 11. And they went and preached to the Lord Jesus, and the hand of the Lord was with them. The hand of the Lord was with them. And a great number believed and turned unto the Lord. You see, it would start small, but then it grows rapidly. The gospel oftentimes seems to start small. It's just a Sunday school class. Just an Awana club. Got a sweet letter this week from a dear friend, she may be watching right now, who reminded me of, our Awana ministry from so many years ago. And I don't know why she had to remind me. I just hadn't thought about about it exactly. But she talked about all the preacher boys, as she put them, who came out of that Awana class. I don't know why I needed to be reminded. Two of them were my boys. But I got to thinking about it, and I could quickly name off the names. There were five young men surrendered to preach out of a Sparks class. How do you like that? You look at those sparkies out there. They're worrying you to death. Firing up, asking crazy questions, won't sit still. You think about those little boys. One day, they might be up here on their knees surrendering their life to God. And only God knows what He's going to do with them. The kingdom starts small. Just a simple thing. Just a Sunday school class. Just an Awana class. It starts small but it grows rapidly. The parable of mustard seed would also emphasize the tenacity of the gospel. Historians tell us that in Bible times, once a field was sowed with mustard, there would be mustard there from then on. The seeds were so small, it was impossible to harvest them all. They didn't have Roundup to spray on it to kill them out when they didn't want them back or whatever. None of that. And so once that mustard was put in a field, it would, it would be in mustard. It'd have some in it forever. See, that's like the gospel. The kingdom of God, what will I compare it to? Well, it's like a mustard seed sowed in a field. Well, it's going to be there. Many, many efforts have been made to eradicate the gospel and wipe it out off the face of this planet. All of them have failed. Aren't you glad they have? I preached about this last week, not going to go into it again. Jesus promised and said heaven and earth would pass away, but His Word would not. But that's how the gospel is working. It's that seed put in the ground. It's, even if it's a small and has a small beginning, even if you can't see it, sometimes God is out there working. God is doing things, and even Baptists can't count it. And that's a challenge. <laughs> we can't count it because we can't see it. We don't know. We don't know how God is working. And lastly, so it starts small, it gets big. Um, then the, the tenacity of the gospel, once it's put in there, it just stays. You can't wipe it out. 
But the mustard seed also emphasizes a collateral blessing. We know a lot more about collateral damage than we do about a collateral blessing. But it's here in the passage because Jesus talked about how that uh, the mustard seed would be planted and it would grow up and, and then the birds would come and nest in its branches. Now you know something about that. Very simple, very obvious about the parable. Nobody, nobody plants mustard for the birds. That wasn't their plan. You don't plant mustard so that it would provide good nesting habitat for the birds. That's not why you do it. They were planting the mustard so that they'd have a harvest of mustard. Uh, they were going to have hot dogs. No, they weren't. They were Jews. <laughs> no, that didn't work. Uh, they, they, they wanted some mustard. Uh, maybe on their greens or their salad. I don't know. That's why they planted it. But it had unintended blessings. Because the birds were able to come and nest in it. You see, wherever the gospel flourishes, wherever the gospel goes to work, there are blessings even to those who don't believe the gospel or don't receive it. There's a blessing that comes. Because when the gospel is received and, and the word of God is flourishing, there are unintended blessings. I preached this back in 2018, and I believed it then, I still believe it today. America was a better nation when the Word of God was respected and the gospel was flourishing. We talk about how that it was a simple time back then. It was not a perfect time, not at all. I would not suggest that to you at all. But it was a simpler time because right and wrong were respected and recognized. We had a standard, and that standard was the Scriptures. There was a time when almost 90% of America identified as Christians, not just religious, Christians. In that same time, almost 60% of the entire population of the United States was in church on any given Sunday. Hmm wasn't a perfect time there was a lot of things that were wrong and I'll go so far today as to even say that some of the things that were wrong were the fault of Christians and preachers and churches racism was flourishing in America during that time we might think it is gone it is not it's shifting around taking on different forms different people are being affected by it, but it's still there. I've heard racism and segregation preached from Baptist pulpits growing up. I don't know how it happened. I, I honestly can't. Because I, I've read the book of Ephesians, and I've read Ephesians chapter 2. I know that God told us that He made of one blood all the peoples of the earth. I know that. I know that Jesus Christ tasted death for every man. And I know that Ephesians chapter 2 says that we died with Christ, we were buried with Him and raised up together with Christ and then made to sit, made to sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. God only acknowledged two ethnicities in the Bible and that's Jews and Gentiles. Everybody who was Jewish and everybody who wasn't Jewish. And they're both, I mean that covers everybody. Do you see what I'm saying? Ephesians chapter 2, God took the Jews and the Gentile and He made us one. One, and then made us sit together 
in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. I, I don't know how we ever got racism out of that. I don't know how we ever got segregation out of that. We didn't get it out of that. We did it the same way we've done a lot of other things through the years. It didn't come from the Bible. We got it, made it up. Somebody thought it sounded good, what they wanted. I don't know. I'm not trying to tell you. I didn't bring that up this morning and uh, just to, to fan any flames or rub anybody's wounds. That, that, that wasn't why I brought it up. I brought it up only to tell you that there were some things that were wrong then. We, we didn't get everything right. We didn't. There's only been one person who got it all right. And that was our Lord Jesus Christ. But I know today that our young people are being raised up to believe that everything about America then was horrible and evil and wrong. I know that young people are being raised up under what's called critical race theory. And I don't even know all about it, but I know that it's happened. It's exploded in fields of higher education and teaching us that America was bad and evil. And that it is somehow better today. But is that the truth? When America was 90% Christian and 60% of us were in church on any given Sunday and the Bible was respected and the truth of God was authoritative, let me tell you a few things about that world. And I could go about this all day, but I won't. I just want to mention a few things. You know, people work for a living and they raise their children to work too. You know what violence at school was in those days? A couple of boys getting in a fight and during recess. And you know what happened? They both got sent to the principal's office. And they both got a paddling. And they went home and they got a whipping. <laughs> so even if you won, you still lost twice. Even if you won the fight, you still lost twice. And if you lost the fight, you lost all three times. I've been on both sides of that thing. After a while, we just decided it wasn't worth it. And we figured out how to settle our differences without coming to blows. There was guns all over the school in those days. And nobody worried about it. it going to any pickup truck, there's at least one, sometimes two. Our streets are filled with bloodshed. Our kids are killing themselves and killing each other. Is our world better? Is our world better? We underwent a revolution that they called a sexual revolution. That was just the hook. What they really wanted us to do was to turn away from the Word of God. They wanted to jettison the Scriptures as our source of authority. They wanted to take all that away. And what have we got since? I remember the first divorce among my entire circle of friends and my entire class. Granted, that was Taylor, Arkansas, and there was 26 people in my class. But that was my whole world. And I remember the first divorce I'd ever seen in that town. And it was devastating to us all. We'd never seen that. Everybody had a mom and daddy at home. Everybody. Now divorce is rampant. Sexual perversion has gone wild. Abortion. Oh my. And it just keeps getting worse and worse. And worse. Al Mohler recently opined that wrote an article about how that somehow or another sexual rights, though it's not even mentioned in the Constitution, is now trumping every other kind of right. There's no end in sight. 
Was America a better nation? I'll ask you a simple question for all of you here and for those of you watching at home. Would you rather live in a city where almost everyone is a Christian? Where almost everyone believes in God and believes the Bible is the Word of God? Would you rather live in a city then where almost everybody goes to church? Or would you rather live in a city where almost no one is a Christian? Almost no one believes in God. Almost nobody believes that the Bible even matters. They wouldn't recognize it or even know anything about it. And of course... No one goes to church. Which city would you rather live in? Which city would you rather raise your kids in? Now I want to make something very clear to you all this morning. We do not advance the kingdom. We do not preach the gospel. We do not proclaim the word of God with the goal of making America a better nation or making making the city of Cabot a better place to live. That's not our goal. We proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ and we preach the truth of God's word because by the gospel people are saved. By the gospel then people are right with God. By learning what the Bible says, they learn what God has told us and how God intends for us to live. We preach the gospel because it changes the lives of people now and it changes their destiny for all eternity from hell to heaven. We preach the gospel because of what it does in the lives of people people but the gospel has an unintended consequence because where the gospel flourishes there's a lot of other blessing that comes out it changes not only people but it changes our culture it has done it in city after city and state after state and country after country for thousands of years it'll still do it now We don't plant the gospel for the birds, but the birds will be blessed by it too. All of that in the parable of the mustard seed. Two great stories today. The parable of the soundly sleeping farmer. You plant seeds and while he's asleep, the seeds are working. He can't see it. He doesn't know what they're doing, but he knows they're working. When harvest time, it's time for it again. He says, oh yeah, ready to harvest and Here he goes. He's taking that sickle and harvesting the grain. Here's a mustard seed planted. It's growing and it has incredible benefits. It shows the tenacity of the gospel. It starts small, but then it grows exponentially. And it blesses even those who are not intended to be blessed. The power of the gospel power of the word I'm going to close out today then with the words of an old hymn in the harvest fields now planted there's a work for all to do hark the master's voice is calling to the harvest calling you Does the place you're called to labor seem so small and little known? It is great if God is in it. He will not forsake His own. Sing the chorus if you know it. 
Little is much if God is in it. Labor not for wealth or fame. There's a crown and we can win it if we go in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together.